What is up, listeners? Welcome back to Episode 7 of Crim de la Crime Podcast. On the list this week is the state of Connecticut. According to worldpopulationreview.com, the state of Connecticut has 197 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So you already know the drill. Grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Connecticut true crime. You like that, you sick son of a bitch? The first story I want to share today was actually a very publicized case at the time that it took place. So it's very possible that some of you have heard of her, but her name is Jennifer Farber Dulos. Jennifer Dulos was born on September 27, 1968 in New York City. Her parents were Gloria Ortenberg and Heliard Farber, a banker and a philanthropist. She has an older sister named Melissa Irene Farber. Jennifer's maternal aunt and uncle, Elizabeth Claiborne and Arthur Ortenberg, founded the fashion company Liz Claiborne, Inc. Jennifer graduated from Brown University in 1990 and later went on to earn a master's degree in writing from the New York University Tisch School of Arts. As a stay-at-home mom, Jennifer made her living as a writer for Patch.com and also ran her own blog. Fotis Dulos was born on August 6, 1967 in Turkey, and he grew up in Athens, Greece. He moved to the United States in 1986. He graduated from Brown University in 1989 and later earned an MBA in finance from Columbia Business School. Fotis married another Brown graduate by the name of Hillary Vanessa Aldama in Athens in June of 2000. The marriage lasted four years, and they were divorced on July 12, 2004. That year, Fotis founded 4 Group Inc., which is a real estate development company specializing in luxury homes based in Connecticut. He had met Jennifer at Brown as well, and he actually started emailing her while he was still with his first wife. They got married on August 8th of 2004 in Manhattan, just a little over a month after Fotis' first divorce was finalized. They ended up moving to Farmington, Connecticut, and had five children together, including two sets of twins, and all of their children were named after Greek Orthodox saints. Now, the names of their five children are available in a simple Google search, but all five of their children have been through a lot already, and as far as I know, they are alive and doing well, so I have decided not to release their names on a public platform, but you guys are welcome to go look those up if you are curious for yourself. In a blog post on March 12, 2012, Jennifer indicated trouble in her marriage, stating, I wish I were a strong person and that confrontation did not both scare and appall me. After the gradual breakdown of the marriage, she filed for divorce on June 20, 2017 at the Superior Court in Stamford. 
In that same month, she started renting a house in New Canaan, which was about 70 miles southwest of Farmington. After renting this house, she moved there with her five children. In her divorce documents, Jennifer wrote, I know that filing for divorce and filing this motion will enrage him. I know that he will retaliate by trying to harm me in some way. She also stated she believed he was having an affair with his colleague. Jennifer also claimed that Fotis had threatened to kidnap their children if she did not agree to his terms of the divorce settlement. She also claimed that he had bought a gun earlier that year. He denied making any threats and claimed he bought the gun legally for home security. Both parents filed numerous motions against the other. Despite Jennifer requesting an emergency order of custody, they were given temporary joint custody of their children until the end of the divorce proceedings. When Jennifer requested another emergency order of custody in early 2018, the judge found that Fotis had broken multiple court orders. In March 2018, Jennifer was awarded sole physical custody of the children while both parents were to share joint legal custody. Fotis was granted supervised visitation and monitored phone calls. In February 2018, after Jennifer's father's death, her mother, Gloria Farber, sued Fotis for unpaid loans. She claimed he owed them $1.7 million that was loaned to him by his father-in-law. Jennifer was last seen around 8 a.m. on May 24, 2019, when she dropped her children off at New Canaan Country School. She was seen again at 8.05 a.m. on a neighbor's security camera returning home. The same day, she missed two doctor's appointments that she had scheduled for 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. in New York City. Later that evening, around 7 p.m., Two of her friends, including her nanny Lauren, reported her missing after they couldn't get in touch with her. Family and friends of Jennifer said it was extremely out of character for her to leave home without telling anyone. Lauren had arrived at the house at 11.30 a.m. that day. She later told detectives she was surprised to see Jennifer's Range Rover in the garage. She stated that Jennifer had told her she planned to take it to her appointments instead of the Chevy Suburban. Lauren noted that the Chevy Suburban was missing when she arrived to the house. When detectives searched the house, they found blood spatter on the floor, door, a wall in the garage, and on the exterior of the Range Rover. Blood was also found in the kitchen. DNA tests revealed most of the blood was Jennifer's, but the blood on the kitchen faucet was a mixture belonging to both her and Fotis. Police also found other evidence that suggested Jennifer was the victim of a serious assault. Jennifer Chevy Suburban had been captured on the neighbor's security camera leaving her home around 10.25 a.m. that morning. Fotis is believed to be the one driving her vehicle, most likely carrying her body and other items associated with the cleanup. That same evening, around 7.30 p.m., Fotis and Michelle, which, remember, Michelle is the woman that Jennifer thought he had been having an affair with. They were captured on video dumping garbage bags in 30 bins in Hartford. 
The trash bags were found to have various pieces of bloody clothing as well as blood-stained cleaning items. It was determined that the blood belonged to Jennifer. Fotis's DNA was found on one of the trash bags and the inside of a glove found in the bags. The Suburban was later found at the side of a road near Waveney Park in New Canaan, just over three miles away from her home. Now, I actually watched the footage of Fotis and Michelle pulling up to multiple trash cans at multiple locations and dumping these bags. And I will try to share that on my social media, but it is important to note that in this footage, Michelle is never seen disposing of the bags. She actually never gets out of the truck. It's always Fotis getting out and disposing of the bags. Now, this makes me wonder if Michelle really knew what was going on or not, because in the future court statements, she stated she was not a willing participant in this. So the video footage does corroborate with her story. Police searched numerous properties in and around Farmington in Fairfield County and near Fotis's home without any success. Investigators believe he arrived by bike to Jennifer's house due to some tire marks that they found there. It's believed that he was lying in wait for her to return home and killed her in the garage when she came back from dropping their kids off at school. I'm thankful that he at least waited until the kids were at school for this because that's pretty much the only silver lining in this whole story. Helicopters were used as well as canine units and divers to search for her. And they used divers because I read where her Chevy Suburban was found abandoned at Waveney Park was actually near a small body of water that was in that park. So that's the body of water that the divers were searching. There has been no activity on her credit cards and no calls made from her cell phone since the day she disappeared. On January 19th, 2021, the Connecticut State Police went out to a property on Mountain Spring Road in Farmington. This property was once owned by Fotis' real estate company, and the police stated that they were following up on old leads. Several authorities could be seen behind the property digging up the yard. Police also brought in Bob Perry, And I found out Bob Perry is a nationally renowned expert at finding unmarked grave sites. The next day, police returned to the Mountain Spring Road property with an excavator and a septic tank. They briefly spoke with the media but said they did not have any updates. On June 1, 2019, Fotis and Michelle were arrested at a hotel in Connecticut and then charged with tampering with evidence and hindering prosecution. Not enough evidence existed at that time to warrant any more serious charges. Jennifer and Fotis's five children, who were all between 8 and 13 at this time, moved to New York City to live with Jennifer's mother after a judge granted her temporary custody. Fotis hired an attorney named Norm Pattis to represent him. In an interview prior to being hired, it seemed like Norm was convinced that Jennifer was dead. Fotis and Michelle both pleaded not guilty to all charges. 
They were then arrested for tampering with evidence and again pleaded not guilty in September of 2019. Fotis appeared in court on October 4th to seek a dismissal of all the charges against him. The judge said he would review arguments by the defense and the prosecution. In late October, it was reported that Michelle, along with her 10-year-old daughter, had moved out of Fotis's $5 million home in Farmington. On January 7, 2020, Fotis was arrested at his home by the Connecticut State Police and charged with capital murder and kidnapping in relation to Jennifer's disappearance. Michelle was also arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Fotis's former attorney, Kent, was also detained on January 7th and he was charged with conspiracy to commit murder as well. Even though these arrests were made, Jennifer's body has still never been found. Kent had previously been separated from his wife after being accused of spousal rape. His wife went to South Windsor Police and told authorities that she was afraid Fotis and Kent were working together to try to kill her. After Jennifer disappeared, a shallow grave was discovered at a secluded property that Kent owned. The shallow grave was filled with two bags of lime and a blue tarp. Authorities and a search dog discovered the grave in August of 2019, but no body was found in the grave. It was also said that it was evident that items had previously been removed from this location. Jennifer's family issued a statement after the arrests were made. They stated, Although we are relieved that the wait for these charges is over, for us there is no sense of closure. Nothing can bring Jennifer back. We miss her every day and will forever mourn her loss. On January 8th, Fotis's bond was set to $6 million. He was released the following day and was due to return to court on February 28th, 2020. In a statement issued in May of 2020, Michelle said it was a mistake to have trusted Fotis, but maintained that she did not know what happened to Jennifer or of her whereabouts. Michelle had been out on bail and was scheduled to appear in court on August 6th of 2020 to face the charges against her. Kent was being held on a $2 million bond that was put in place, but later that bond was reduced to $246,000 and he was released on October 19th of 2020. So at this point, Kent and Fotis are both out on bail. And while out on bail, Fotis failed to appear in court on January 28, 2020 for an emergency bond hearing. He was later found in an unresponsive state by police at his home in Farmington. He had poisoned himself with carbon monoxide by running a vacuum cleaner hose from the exhaust pipe of his SUV into the interior of the car while it was parked in the garage. Initially, it was reported by some news outlets that he had been found dead, but first responders had performed CPR and were able to restore a faint pulse. They then transported him by ambulance to Yukon Medical Center in Farmington, and from there he was airlifted to Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx to undergo hyperbaric oxygen therapy. His five children visited him at the medical center before he was taken off of life support. 
This was the first time they had seen their father since he was accused of murdering their mother. Fotis was pronounced dead at Jacoby Medical Center on January 30th of 2020. He was 52 years old at this time. He left a suicide note in his car that read, I refuse to spend even an hour more in jail for something I had nothing to do with. In the police report, it states that his new girlfriend, Anna Curry, was at his home the morning of his suicide. They had planned to drive to the courthouse in Stamford together, but Fotis said that they should drive separately. On the way to the courthouse, Anna received a call from Pattis asking where his client was. She told him that they were driving separately, but Pattis told her that Fotis's GPS tracker showed that he was still at the house. At this point, Anna realized that he must have done something to hurt himself and asked Pattis to call 911. The documentary Vanished in New Canaan, an ID mystery, which premiered on Investigation Discovery on June 1st of 2020, attempts to piece together the facts of Jennifer Dulos's disappearance. The Lifetime Channel also created a movie about Jennifer's case titled Gone Mom, The Jennifer Dulos Story. I do highly recommend watching this movie because Lifetime did a really good job with it. In May of 2021, a domestic violence bill called Jennifer's Law received near-unanimous support in the Connecticut State Senate. The proposed law is named after Jennifer Dulos and Jennifer Magnano. In 2007, Jennifer Magnano was murdered by her husband, Scott Magnano, in Terryville, Connecticut. Scott committed suicide immediately after murdering his wife in front of their three children. On June 28, 2021, Governor Ned Lamont signed the bill officially into law. Jennifer Dulos was last seen on May 24, 2019, when she was 50 years old. She was last seen at 8.05 a.m. on a neighbor's security camera returning home after dropping her kids off at school. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and brown eyes. She is 5'9 and weighed around 120 pounds. She is presumed to be deceased, but she has never been found or heard from since the day she disappeared. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Jennifer Dulos, please contact the New Canaan Police Department at 203 594 35 the second case I want to share today is about a man by the name of Robert Hoagland. And I did a lot of digging on Robert's case, and no matter where I looked, I could not find his middle name. But his wife and children and family and friends all said that he did go by Hoagie, but I'm going to be referring to him as Robert in this episode. There also is not a lot of background information about Robert's life that's available. His story pretty much picks up around the time that he disappeared, so that's where we're pretty much going to pick up today. Robert Hoagland was born on June 9th, 1963. Him and his wife, Lori, had been married for 25 years. The couple raised their three sons in a home on Glen Road in the Sandy Hook section of Newtown, Connecticut. 
The couple had separated at one point for two years, but later ended up getting back together and began planning for their retirements. Lori was a culinary arts teacher at Newtown High School, and Robert initially worked as a professional chef in a local restaurant. He later left for a position at a friend's law office in Bridgeport. He also worked as a self-employed real estate appraiser in his home office. Robert and Lori's 24-year-old son, Max, had a history of problems with drug addiction and had been in rehab earlier in 2013. This was the ultimate reason that Robert had decided to leave his restaurant job so that he could help with his son's recovery at home. Robert and Lori had also talked about going on a hiking trip with Max on the Appalachian Trail that summer as part of that effort as well. In July, Lori went on a two-week trip to Turkey with some of her friends, but she said that her and Robert regularly exchanged emails while she was away. The week before Lori's return, two of the family's laptops were stolen from the house. Robert thought that Max had taken them to either sell or exchange them for drugs, and he ended up sending an email to Lori apologizing for allowing that to happen. Investigators later learned that he had traveled to an abandoned industrial building in Bridgeport, and he confronted the men that Max said were responsible for stealing the laptops. On July 25th, $600 was withdrawn from one of the family's bank accounts, and has never been accounted for to this day. Robert and Lori spoke on the phone on the evening of July 27th, and Robert confirmed to Lori that he would be at JFK Airport two days later to pick her up when she got back from Turkey. Early the next morning, he went out in Lori's Volkswagen to buy bagels for breakfast at a local bakery. After this, he stopped at a mobile gas station on Churchill Road near Interstate 84 to get gas. Security cameras inside recorded him paying for the gas and also buying a map of the eastern United States, and this was at 6.45 a.m. This would be his last documented public sighting. When Robert came home, him and Max had breakfast. Max said that after breakfast, Robert paid some bills and played Scrabble online. Around 10 or 11 a.m., Robert went outside to mow the yard. While he was still mowing the yard, Max went out in the Volkswagen and he told his father that he would be back in just a few hours. There was a neighbor that also did confirm to the police that he saw Max and Robert talking on the front lawn at this time, so this part of the story was confirmed. The next day, Robert never showed up at the airport when Lori arrived around 4 p.m. She tried calling both their home and his cell phone, but got no answer on either phone. She assumed that he was in traffic on his way there to get her and that his phone battery was dead. She did later state that this happened with him frequently, so this is why she didn't think it was weird at the time. Instead of going home... Lori went to a relative's house that lived nearby. She made a phone call to Robert's boss's wife, and she learned from her that Robert had not shown up for work that morning either. When Lori finally got home on July 30th, Robert was not at home. When she went inside, she found his phone, keys, passport, 
and prescription high blood pressure medications, as well as his dirty clothes in the laundry. The lawnmower Robert had been using had been returned to its usual storage location, and the loafers he had been wearing when he went on his morning shopping trip were also in the house, as was his second pair. And this is important later. His Mini Cooper was still parked in the driveway as well. With her Volkswagen still missing, Lori assumed that Robert may have had some other reason that he had to abruptly leave. She ended up hearing from the police in Bridgeport that they had arrested Max the night before near the same building where Robert had gone a few days before to confront the men that Max had told him had taken those laptops. The police said that this location is known for drug sales and prostitution. Since the area is clearly posted, Max was charged with third-degree criminal trespassing, which is a misdemeanor. Max told police he had gone there in the Volkswagen to buy drugs and that he had his mother's permission to use that car. His mom told the Bridgeport police that he had not been given permission to use that vehicle, so they held him on a $2,500 bond. However, when he was questioned, Max had no idea where Robert was. Robert's family informed the National Park Service that he might have decided to go on his own to hike the Appalachian Trail. Along with friends of the family, the Park Service printed and handed out flyers with his picture and worked to bring media attention to Robert's case. The Newtown police looked into the case as well and soon learned about the events leading up to his disappearance, such as the confrontation in Bridgeport and the cash withdrawal. A week after his disappearance, Robert's personal information was entered into the National Missing and Unidentified Person System database. Around August 6th, Lori found Robert's wallet and car keys hidden under a doll on a chair in their bedroom. She said later that this made her change her mind that her husband had left voluntarily and may have possibly been abducted instead. Around this time, Max pled guilty to the trespassing charge and was also released from jail. Police questioned the two men that he said stole the laptops, but they could not establish any link to Robert's disappearance. Max also denied any knowledge of his father's whereabouts, and Lori later said that his arrest was unconnected to the disappearance. Police also searched Robert's work computer, and they found that he had searched an address in Rhode Island several times. When the address was investigated, they didn't find anything to suggest that he had ever been there. A similar search on his home computer didn't lead to any answers because he had apparently downloaded and installed a program a month before he disappeared that allowed the user to delete all records of searches and results. In the fall, Lori and volunteers searched wooded areas in and around Sandy Hook, and the police brought in search dogs as well. The Newtown police used sonar to search a lake on the edge of town in September. None of these efforts turned up any trace of Robert. The next month, the couple's oldest son, Chris, left his job in the tourism industry in Hilton Head, South Carolina, to move home and take over his father's responsibilities around the house. In September of 2013, the family began the court process necessary to appoint a trustee to represent Robert's interest, even though they hoped that it would not be necessary. Later that same month, 
two sightings of men matching Robert's description were reported in Rhode Island. A man with a backpack was seen walking along Rhode Island Route 117 and Interstate 95 near Warwick, but when this tip was investigated, it turned out to be someone else. A short time later, Rhode Island Department of Transportation workers also reported seeing a similar-looking man who also had a backpack walking west along Rhode Island Route 165 near the Connecticut state line at Voluntown. Police were unable to locate that man or ever determine his identity. In December of 2013, the Los Angeles Police Department told citizens of the area to be on the lookout for Robert. The family had stated that he had connections to several Los Angeles suburbs, including Hollywood. While no significant sightings have ever been reported in L.A., another sighting did come in January. A tipster reported seeing Robert at a Savers thrift store in Brookfield, just to the north of Newtown. He was reportedly driving a car with New York license plates, but when they reviewed the security camera footage from the store, it was inconclusive. Around the one-year anniversary of Robert's disappearance in late July of 2014, another sighting near Newtown was reported. A man told officials that he had seen Robert going into the county jail in Carmel, which is only a short distance from Connecticut, and then leaving after only two minutes. The only video footage the county could find that might have shown the man was from the building's exterior camera, and the man on it could not be conclusively identified. While all this is going on, some of Robert's friends and family complained about the slow pace of the search. They believed criminal activity was likely and that the police had silently concluded that he had left the area on his own in order to devote fewer resources to the investigation. Quote, All we know is that he went to the Church Hill Road mobile gas station, filled up his car, and bought a map. We're at the same place we were at day one, said one officer. Critics faulted the police for not publicizing the case more or enlisting the assistance of other law enforcement agencies. In November of 2014, Newtown Police received another tip that Robert might be working in a restaurant in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They clarified to a local newspaper that the tipster had not claimed to have actually seen Robert, only that he might be there. Their counterparts in Horry County, where Myrtle Beach is located, provided them some assistance. At that time, Richard Robinson, a Newtown supervising detective, stated, We cannot say how long it may be before it's known whether Mr. Hoagland is in South Carolina or not. In 2016, the producers of the Investigation Discovery series Disappeared focused an episode on Robert's disappearance. Since there had been no significant leads or sightings since 2014, Newtown police and the family were hopeful that it would produce some new information. The episode called A Family Man aired on May 31st. As far as investigators are concerned, there are two possibilities. One, that he was the victim of foul play. Or two, that he decided to completely walk away from his life. 
Both of these are equally possible, but there's no evidence to suggest one theory is more likely than the other. Since Lori found her husband's wallet and keys hidden in their bedroom, she believes foul play is a strong possibility. She stated that the $600 was an odd amount to withdraw if Robert was planning to disappear. This amount was more than could be withdrawn at an ATM at this time, but also nowhere near enough to live on for an extended period of time. When it came to questions being asked about the earlier separation, Lori stated, If he wanted out of the marriage, all he would have had to say is that he wanted out of the marriage, but that was not remotely where we were. His son Chris said he also finds it unlikely that his father left the house without wearing one of his two pairs of loafers. He was later quoted saying that they were the only shoes that Robert ever wore. Lori says she believes it's possible that when it came to his children, Robert could have made someone feel threatened enough to do harm to him in return. She was quoted saying, I've seen him chase people down the street with baseball bats. Family and friends also don't believe he would have walked away from his children by choice. Lori stated, I don't believe he just left. Wouldn't he have surfaced by now? The family believes that Robert is no longer in the Newtown area. Lori made a statement saying, he's going to be stumbled upon. Someone's going to find him accidentally, and I hope that's sooner than later. Robert Hoagland was last seen at his home on July 28, 2013, when he was 49 years old. He is a Caucasian male with short brown hair, mostly bald with closely cropped hair on the sides, and he has blue eyes. He is 6 feet tall and weighed approximately 175 pounds. He was called Hoagie by his family and was last seen wearing khaki shorts and a white t-shirt. He is classified as missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Robert Hoagland, please contact the Newtown Police Department at 203-270-4229. That's all I have for this week's episode, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email podcast 7 at gmail.com. Head over to Instagram and follow me at pod, And don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. Mm-hmm.